Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Three years ago, Emmanuel Macron swept to victory as France's president, just a year after founding an entirely new party. But his tenure has been rocky, racked by protests. Now, as party members defect, he must continue to adjust his course. And it's not hard to find books by doctors and surgeons. But where are the books by nurses? They're coming. The healthcare professionals with the closest patient relationships are at last finding their way onto bookshelves. But first... On every screen, television to computer to phone, America's wave of protests has captivated the world's attention. Black Lives Matter! Talking about make America great. Great for who and great when. We gonna make America great for everybody for the first time. Donald Trump has cast himself as a wartime president, a force for law and order. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting. The television cameras can't look away, but online, Mr. Trump's efforts have run into difficulty. Last week, for the first time, Twitter put warnings on two of his tweets, suggesting one was misleading and that another glorified violence. The spat continued this week. On Wednesday, Twitter published a story correcting information in another presidential tweet. Yesterday, it removed a video the president tweeted, citing copyright claims. All that stands in sharp contrast to action, or lack of action, taken by Facebook. Even as many employees staged a walkout earlier this week, calling on the platform to moderate Mr. Trump's posts, its boss, Mark Zuckerberg, insisted he was committed to free expression. Potential business partners have also criticized Facebook. The online therapy company Talkspace pulled out of a collaboration. Its chief executive, Oren Frank, says the company knows how damaging inflammatory posts can be. I think it's about time that everyone takes a stand and it's time for action and not for opinions and and tweets. And I thought it was a very, it was a line that was being crossed. So in essence, we took the decision, but mostly because we couldn't take any other one. So why is it these two social networks have such different approaches? For one, it's, it's a question of personalities. Ludwig Ziegler is our U.S. technology editor. So Jack Dorsey's a very hands-off new ager. He, he likes ice baths and regular fasts. Uh, let's say he's probably politically more left-wing than, than Zuckerberg, whereas Zuckerberg is kind of this corporate absolutist ruler, and he has a mission. He wants to bring the world closer together. Uh, so, that, so there are clearly personality or differences in personality and differences in style. But I think a very important role is, is the difference in business model between Twitter and Facebook. How do you mean? How are the business models so different? 
So if you look at Twitter and, and Facebook, and, and if you look at them superficially, you may think they're actually quite the same or quite similar. They both offer you kind of news feeds, uh, they're online, they make their money with advertising, they collect a lot of data. But if you look more closely, they're, they're actually quite different. The best way to think about Twitter is to think of it as kind of a, a speaker's corner. Uh, Twitter is, by, by uh, social media scholars, is considered a, a one-to-many medium. Whereas Facebook is much more about having friends, having groups of friends, uh, you have to be invited, basically a one-to-one, one-to-a-few uh, type, type of network. So that difference may, may seem subtle to non-experts, but it has very important economic and business implications for these two companies. D- difference is how? One, one makes more money than the other? In the end, that's <laughs> the, the outcome. So Facebook, because it's a social network, it has much stronger what economists call network effects. So uh, the, the platform, the service gets more valuable as more people join, which attracts more people. You want to talk to your friends. If your friends are on Facebook, that's where you go. Whereas with Twitter, those network effects are much weaker. I mean, they exist, uh, let's say, between extroverts who really want to be on Twitter and, and, and make their voices heard. That For them, that's a must to be on there. But it's basically there's no kind of turbocharged growth engine uh, built into, into the Twitter uh, service. You, you talked about growth and making more money. And, and if you look at the, the numbers, Facebook is much, much bigger than Twitter. So Facebook boasts 10 times the users of, of Twitter and 25 times the profit. Do, do those differences go anyway to explaining why there are differences in, in the way they think about moderating content? Yes. Twitter is not a monopoly. And so they are freer in, in what they could do with content, whereas Facebook basically has become, in countries like the U.S., uh, the main, the dominant platform for, for political discourse. Because Facebook is so much bigger, it's politically more vulnerable to, let's say, antitrust action. And so that's that's been in the air for some time. Uh, there apparently plans by, uh, by government agencies in Washington to go after Facebook. So politically, uh, uh, Facebook has to be much more careful in what it does. But even Twitter doesn't seem immune here. President Trump threatened big action after those posts were hidden. So what Mr. Trump did was uh, signing an executive order saying that if these companies, if these services are not neutral, quote unquote, we have to reconsider uh, what is called the exemption from liability for the content on there. Now, let me explain that. So in the in the mid 90s, there was a worry that that these companies, and it wasn't Facebook or, or, or Twitter back then, but other online companies, that they would not touch online content moderate what's on their sites in any way, because otherwise they would make themselves liable to uh, all kinds of lawsuits. And that would be very costly, and that would kind of stymie the development of of the online industry. And so Congress passed a law, the Communications Decency Act, and one section of that act, Section 230, it says basically, so even if an online company does moderate content, it doesn't make it liable to uh, in any way for that content. And now, Mr. Trump then went ahead and said, so if you're not neutral, let's, let's look at uh, Section 230 again and perhaps get rid of it kind of as a threat. But I mean, all of this is a, a, a much bigger debate about the degree to which social media networks should or, or even can kind of police all of that content. How, how do you think this will actually play out from, starting from this? So my guess is that you will continue to see a tightening of, of things like Section uh, 230, and that, that's already happening. Germany is revising its law. The European Union wants to go further. But what is interesting is that you see the emergence of a, a third actor on the content moderating uh, stage. 
groups that uh, second guess or oversee uh, the content moderating decisions by big social media companies. And they come in the form of public policy bodies or, or regulatory bodies like in, in, in the UK, they're planning to do that. But also interestingly, by groups started by the social media companies. In particular, Facebook has recently launched what's called the Oversight Board, which is kind of a Supreme Court where Facebook users can go to if they feel that their content, for, for instance, has been taken down uh, for the wrong reasons that, and, and, and they feel limited in their speech. And that body is supposed to be rather independent. It's based in London, has its own budget. So, so I think what you will see is kind of this, this third layer between governments and social media companies that helps uh, finding decisions or making decisions on, on these very, very tricky questions when it comes to speech online. Ludwig, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. On this week's episode of The Economist Asks, our interview show, Anne McElvoy speaks to Valerie Jarrett, a former senior advisor to President Obama who held responsibility for criminal justice reform. Ms. Jarrett reflects on whether America's protest mood could represent a turning point. Now, you might say this is late, and that would be true. And that's part of the anger and frustration is why have we not done this sooner? But here we are now. And the question is, do we have that perfect storm in a sense where you have people mobilizing in the streets, where you have mayors saying, yes, we have to do something about this because they're managing the unrest and they're, they're being put under a lot of pressure. And then you have the swift, really swifter than I've ever seen, Attorney General from Minnesota, Keith Ellison, who I knew when he served in Congress, not only bring charges against all four officers, up the charge of the initial officer from uh, third degree to second degree, but to do it so swiftly and decisively, send a positive message that those in power are listening. For the full conversation, look for The Economist Asks, available wherever you listen. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com France's President Emmanuel Macron is looking politically wobbly. Elected officials are drifting away from En Marche, the party he founded. It seems a long time since he swept to electoral victory in 2017, calling for unity as he addressed a cheering crowd in the courtyard of the Louvre. Tonight, there are only French women and men, the people of France brought together. And what you represent tonight at the Louvre is a fervor and enthusiasm. It is the energy of the people of France. His ambitious plan to reform France's economy resonated with many, but his presidency has been overshadowed by widespread and sustained protests. And just as the country split over what France's future should look like, the same issues seem to be splitting its party. 
President Macron has come through uh, this pandemic with a slight problem in Parliament and a slight problem with his own popularity rating. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. He has lost a group of deputies, which has robbed him of his absolute parliamentary majority. And in opinion polls, he has not enjoyed the sort of bounce that some other leaders have done. So he is looking at ways in which he can try and deal with this particularly difficult situation. And how is it that he lost that majority? What, what, uh, why did members defect from the party? So uh, when Macron set up uh, En Marche as a party, it brought people from the left of the political spectrum and from the right and those who originally came from the left, from often from the Socialist Party, had felt that this has really turned into something of a, of a right-wing government. The prime minister is from the right. Uh, the finance minister is from the right. And some of the policies they felt were not answering the needs of those on the left and, and in the Green movement. So it was a feeling that the party didn't, uh, didn't really speak to them anymore and they wanted to do something about it. They haven't set up a new party, but they have set up a new group within uh, the French parliament. And in doing so, they have uh, therefore deprived Macron of his absolute majority. And as for losing that, that, that absolute majority in, in terms of the day-to-day business of government, how problematic is that? Well, I think it's important to make a distinction between Macron losing his absolute majority with his own party, La République en Marche, and then looking at the majority that backs formally backs the, the government. And that has always been made up of uh, Macron's party, but also of another centrist party called Modem, and also other party members um, on, the, on the right of the political spectrum. Now, that hasn't changed. Uh, there is still an, a working majority for the government, and this is a very loyal majority. So in terms of policymaking, I don't think it will have an impact. Uh, the government can still pretty much do what it wants in terms of legislation, but the impact is more the, the symbolism uh, of it, which is damaging, and I think the fact that it does reflect real discontent within the ranks of Macron's party about the direction in which uh, this government has gone or, or might be going. We, we've spoken before about the degree to which Mr. Macron has had to kind of uh, adjust his presidency as it's gone along in, in the face of, of new threats. Do, do you think that uh, the, these defections and, and the way things have played out will, will force him to rethink things once again? I think over the next few weeks or months, we should be looking, or we could be looking at some quite significant changes in the French government. And I think that Macron is working through these options in his own mind at the moment. Uh, there is an opportunity to make important decisions at the end of June, because France holds the second round of its municipal election, which was rescheduled. Um, and the Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, is running for mayor of, of Le Havre, a town in, in northern France. So if he wins that election, the prime minister would have uh, an exit option and that would leave Macron able to replace him with someone else. This could provide Macron with exactly what he needs in order to try and reset his presidency, rethink the way in which he reforms France in a very, very different sort of era um, after this pandemic, when people are looking really for protection, for safety, for security, for an efficient public administration, rather than some of the, the reforms, the more liberalising reforms that he had been um, promoting during the first three years. And, and what about more widely still in, in Europe? Mr. Macron is certainly involved in um, discussions for how Europe will, will develop and, and distribute stimulus to, to get through the pandemic. Do you, do you think this political wobble at home is going to have any effect on all that? I don't think it will, actually. I mean, that's one of the interesting things is that even though Macron is uh, criticised at home, he is actually uh, largely praised for the uh, actions he's taken in terms of trying to rebuild Europe. 
And we've seen that with this Franco-German proposal, which he and uh, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, put together. And this is for the 500 billion euro recovery funds, which would be financed by borrowing, joint borrowing by the European Commission. And this is a historic moment in a way for for, for Europe and for Macron himself to have managed to convince Angela Merkel to uh, contemplate any form of sort of mutualised debt for Europe. And it's been very much perceived in Paris as a a victory for the French. Uh, It's what they've been pressing for years, actually, ever since Macron was elected. And so in that respect, I think he is showing that he can still act on the world stage. um, And that, that is somewhat independent of his domestic political difficulties. Sophie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To check out the best introductory offer wherever you are around the world, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. These invisible women, goddesses of caring and tending, but no one hears when their skulls pound like coconut shells about to crack. Raised in the Philippines, Romalyn Ante is a nurse in Britain's National Health Service. She's also an award-winning poet. Once, my mother cut through the blurred backs of men towards a gasping child and found a blade of grass fluttering in his throat. The air opened and she was gone. She writes a lot not only about frontline nursing and the challenges, the drama of that work, but also about how coming to another place in order to perform this function changes you. So her poetry is also about migration. It's about memory. It's about a very intense, visceral nostalgia for the central world of the Philippines where she grew up. Boyd Tonkin writes for The Economist's Books and Arts section. There's a new poem called Unbecoming Marimot, which was written In fact, in the middle of March, as she was working, as the pandemic struck in Britain. Here is a world that surrenders to stiff doors, pink shadows in windows. She walks an unlit road on her own, yet not alone. Look at her now, night after night, shift after shift. It's about essentially trying to keep it together as a nurse on the ward under immense pressure day in and day out and using that memory of the legends, the law, the customs and rituals of your childhood in order to just keep everything together in this incredibly difficult time. And so why is her poetry remarkable to you? It's extremely good poetry, very powerful, very affecting, very well-crafted. But also, it's still comparatively rare to have literary work from people who are currently working as nurses. Literary doctors have been really pretty commonplace for many hundreds of years. Nurses have taken much longer to enter that literary limelight. And of course, this reflects the historic undervaluing of their profession, something that has really only been addressed and partially rectified in the last few decades. 
And looking across that sort of emergent breed of literature, what does it teach you about nursing, about the, the role of a nurse? Well, people have always said that literary doctors have a special, almost advantage in that they're seeing people in these very dramatic situations when powers of observation, of empathy, of understanding matter, and that those qualities can be conveyed if you have the gift into literature. And all of that applies to nurses. But to my mind, there's something extra about their position. How do you mean? Well, among the recent British nurses who've become writers, I think, for instance, of Christy Watson, who has a memoir called The Language of Kindness. And one of the points she makes in that a really excellent book is that nurses are really the focus of the entire journey of the patient through the experience of illness. She talks about nurses being the thing at the centre always there, always able to observe, always able to interact with the patient in a deeper and more rounded way, perhaps, than even doctors can achieve. Then, for instance, there's Emma Glass, the Welsh-born writer, who professionally is a paediatric nurse working in intensive care. And in her new novel, which is called Rest and Be Thankful, there are some astonishing scenes which take you really into the heart of the nurse's experience of working with these tiny, vulnerable children's lives as they struggle to survive. And she makes very powerful use of the impact of that experience on the nurse themselves. In other words, the way that the nurse has to absorb the pain of others, has to soak it up. And the burden that imposes on the carer, a burden that the patient and the patient's family often don't see. And so do you think that the growing prevalence of this kind of writing will help people understand the nurse's plight better? Do you, do you think the pandemic itself might change how the profession itself is appreciated? Well, I hope that it will do that irrespective of what happens in literature. But maybe what the literary dimension can add is, as you say, an understanding of what it feels like from the nurse's point of view, that these engagements with the patient are often reported from the point of view of someone who's gone through the experience of illness. But the mind of the carer matters just as much. And that is precisely what this new and very welcome collection of nurse writers can tell us about. Boyd, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here on Monday. might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.